I'm Jeffrey Sachs, university professor at Columbia University and director of the United Nations Sustainable Development Solutions Network. Jeffrey Sachs is one of the foremost architects of the global future. He uses his work and his life to defend the multilateral system and, in his own words, is a big believer in the global goals that define our ambitions to the year 2030. To date, we focused on COVID-19 as a pandemic that's claiming hundreds of thousands of lives. But we haven't looked hard enough at how it's unraveling the world and bringing us farther than ever from achieving a fair and equitable tomorrow. I'm James Chow, and welcome to this conversation. Jeffrey Sachs, welcome to the China Current, and thank you very much for sharing this time. I want to start by asking you how you are and how you feel about five months into this pandemic, which is not only quick, it's flexible, and some would say very ruthless. Well, it's a very frightening time. Uh, my family and I are sheltered. Uh, New York City is uh, one of the world's uh, epicenters of the pandemic right now. Uh, our country was not ready uh, and uh, it did not prepare, and it became overwhelmed by the epidemic. I'm also very worried about uh, politics. I'm very worried about uh, global cooperation. I'm very worried about uh, poor countries that don't have the resources to cope. So there's a lot of uh, reason for worry right now. A lot of people have been talking about therapies and vaccines. When will it be ready? Is it going to be a guarantee? And even if it is achieved, will it be available to every human on the planet, but let's just say we've got a tick for all of those. Is that going to be an answer to ending a crisis that has taken on significant social and economic dimensions? I doubt that a vaccine is going to come in the same time horizon as uh, this acute crisis, acute in the sense that uh, economies are partially shut down, people are suffering, economically, and the disease continues to spread. Uh, I could be wrong, but uh, typically vaccines uh, are developed uh, in the course of years, not months, whereas epidemics rage in a matter of weeks and months. Uh, so I don't think that it's going to be the vaccine that will be uh, the immediate uh, response to this epidemic. I think uh, we're going to need other kinds of responses, mainly containment of the epidemic through public health measures uh, as our first line of resort and global cooperation to make sure that uh, we don't leave a devastating uh, loss of lives and livelihoods in the wake of this epidemic. You've been writing as usual. In one of those opinion pieces, you talked about your two options for a way forward. Now, some people have been talking about testing, but you specifically split it between the rapid isolation of infected individuals, but also a shutdown of activity that involves face-to-face -face contact. Is that realistic? Are either of those realistic? The epidemic uh, is uh, decisively slowed when one infectious individual tends to pass the disease along to less than one new case. That's how you control an epidemic. There are various ways to 
slow or stop or reduce the transmission of the disease. Uh, one way uh, is for people who are infected to be isolated uh, or quarantined. Uh, and if they can be identified early, possibly through testing, possibly through symptoms, and then stay at home. Or if home is not adequate because there are other people uh, at home who would be vulnerable in a quarantine facility, that's one method. A second method is personal uh, hygiene and physical distancing. If each infected individual stays away from other people, is wearing a face mask. If other people are wearing face masks and using hygiene, this also at least reduces the frequency of transmission. A third way, which half the world is using right now, is closing down a lot of economic activities uh, so that people don't go out and they don't mix. That's an extremely costly approach. Why is it being done? Because these governments haven't done the alternative of focused uh, case identification, focused isolation, focused quarantine, focused uh, uh, methods uh, of uh, reducing the transmission. So what I keep arguing uh, in the US <coughs> and internationally is the lockdown approach might have been a last resort as the epidemic was overtaking countries, but we have to move beyond that by moving to public health. Public health means you identify infected people very rapidly. You isolate those people. You trace their contacts. And even if there aren't test kits, there are symptoms. They're not perfect, but they can be used to uh, presumptively identify people. And we need all of the other measures of hygiene and physical distancing. We need people to be wearing face masks. Uh, that's usual in Asia, but not usual in most of the rest of the world. We need to be screening for fever uh, by uh, all of the thermal monitoring equipment. Uh, we need to have hand sanitizers. We need to stop shaking hands and hugging right now. We need to avoid large events that could become super spreading events, big religious meetings or sports events or uh, highly concentrated crowds where the disease can spread. We have to be smart about stopping the transmission, but if we're not smart, the only alternative is closing down economic activity, which is uh, terribly expensive and a huge, huge cost for uh, lots of people who have no alternative uh, but to go out and work. You mentioned Asia there, and you've written about what you call an East-West divide, where you say East Asian countries are generally outperforming the United States and Europe in terms of their response success. Uh, let's start off then with China, the biggest of those countries in the Asian region. Um, how well do you think, or how well not do you think, it performed in its early outbreak and since? Well, the, the China story is complicated and there are still pieces to be filled in. Uh, the epidemic began sometime uh, in late 2019. We don't really know when precisely. Uh, the uh, cluster of cases in Wuhan 
uh, was identified by the doctors there uh, in mid-December uh, or uh, maybe around December 20. By uh, late December, it was pretty clear there was something really nasty going on uh, with the, a new pneumonia uh, and most likely a viral disease, uh, something like SARS. Uh, couple of weeks uh, passed uh, until it was clarified that there was a new coronavirus. Uh, this was uh, uh, sequenced and then uh, put online around uh, January 11 for the whole world to know about this. Uh, Wuhan made a very serious mistake at the start of the Chinese New Year on uh, the 18th of January where there was a massive uh, New Year's party of thousands and thousands of people. This definitely spread the disease widely. Then those people dispersed to different parts of China and across the world, and that was a spreader of the disease. I think uh, China's uh, leadership uh, realized this was out of control uh, at that point. Uh, and uh, on January 23rd, uh, Wuhan was locked down, uh, then Hubei province, then all of China, basically. From that point on, uh, China's performance uh, has been remarkable. Uh, in, indeed, uh, China showed what I think most public health experts would have thought to be impossible, which is that even after an epidemic has broken out, it can still be contained because China battled this disease back down to near zero. Uh, not to zero, but to near zero. It's a remarkable achievement. It gave hope for the rest of the world that you could actually fight the epidemic, not just suffer the epidemic. Other countries in Asia were afraid from the start uh, because they knew about SARS. Uh, and as soon as the World Health Organization heard about a mysterious uh, pneumonia uh, at the end of uh, December 2019, they started screening uh, passengers coming in from China so Singapore, Hong Kong, Taiwan, uh, Korea really stood up and took notice and uh, kept the epidemic uh, limited. Uh, in Western Europe and the United States, basically uh, the politicians and the system was asleep uh, at, at the switch, even though there were plenty of alarm bells going off, uh, there wasn't a public health response. Uh, and uh, the cases came originally from China, then started spreading in the community, uh, and the numbers got large before anybody realized it. Uh, in the United States, uh, we had uh, absolutely disastrous uh, political uh, leadership from the Trump administration. Uh, Trump himself was as irresponsible as uh, anybody could be, saying, repeatedly in January and February, no problem, it's just the flu, it's all under control, it'll go away magically in April. Uh, a track record, I'm afraid, that is uh, the worst of uh, any president I know of in American history in regard to a major public health uh, or security emergency. Now we're paying the price. Uh, the virus spread across the country. The epidemic spread across the country. We have more than 40,000 deaths. Uh, New York uh, is uh, at the center of that uh, for the moment, but this is a disease that's all over the United States. So I would say the performance has been differential. Uh, East Asia better, more alert, prepared by SARS, 
better personal hygiene in the sense of physical distancing, face mask wearing. Uh, it's much more normal in Asia to have your temperature taken by a thermal scan. If you go to an Asian airport, you almost always walk through a quarantine uh, desk uh, and the scanner is on in US airports, not at all. Uh, in European airports, not at all. In other words, uh, East Asia is much more prepared for epidemics than uh, Western Europe and the United States. And uh, these rich countries of the West are paying a fear, fearsome price for that. You mentioned the United States. A lot of people have strong emotions about all countries today, and especially China. When you mentioned the word China, a lot of red flags go up for different people. Rightly or wrongly, we're not here necessarily to talk about that. But what I worry about, Professor Sachs, is that China had the early experience. As you said, it was a mixed bag of experiences as well. Do you think that some people are allowing those emotions to get in the way of seeing lessons that could save lives in their own communities? Well, I think, unfortunately, the situation is even more frightening than that because the U.S. right wing was attacking China beforehand. Uh, and uh, the uh, Trump administration had uh, its so-called trade war against China and then its technology war against China. Uh, I regarded uh, those as dangerous, wrong, uh, absurd, uh, on false pretenses, but it showed uh, China's successes of recent years had triggered uh, a uh, response by the American right wing, the hardline nationalists, uh, to say we have to confront China. And Trump was in the middle of confronting uh, China, and uh, I think very dangerously so, and I opposed it all along. Uh, then came the epidemic. Now uh, the right wing in America is trying to use the epidemic as another part of its uh, fight against China. This is uh, stupid and dangerous. When I say in the United States that China contained the epidemic uh, and uh, shows lessons of how to do this, I'm attacked uh, for uh, saying something good about China. Uh, and then uh, I get accused, oh, it's all lies, nothing's true, everything's phony, uh, by people who are ignorant or malicious. Uh, but the fact of the matter is we're in a difficult and dangerous period right now because there was nationalism uh, already. Uh, there was, in the United States, uh, growing hard line against China, mainly in my interpretation, because China has been successful. Uh, and success is not something that some Americans want to see, actually, uh, because uh, they, are, uh, they don't like the competition. Uh, they're uh, a little afraid. Uh, so there was already that mood. And now, uh, of course, this epidemic is being politicized by the right wing. When I say the right wing, I mean mainly the Republican Party in the United States, but it's both parties to, to some extent. And uh, when Trump closed uh, the funding for World Health Organization, there were two reasons for this. Uh, one is anything that he could do to deflect his own failure, he would do. 
So this was a, a move to uh, try to cast blame on a, an organization that is so central and vital for global well-being that it's, uh, it was a shock to the world when Trump uh, did that. But also the charge was WHO is too close to China. So it was politicizing the pandemic uh, as part of this U.S. Uh, fight against China, which, as I want to emphasize again and again, is both dangerous and wrongheaded and very worrisome to me because there's a lot of nationalism and a lot of U.S. propaganda uh, that gets engaged in this, and it's not good. We need cooperation. We need peaceful relations. We need to be learning from each other, uh, and we need to be uh, solving global problems together, uh, whether it's the pandemic or climate change or many other problems where the U.S. and China need to work closely together, uh, not uh, as antagonists, but as partners in solving global problems. When we look at the U.S.-China relationship, we used to talk so much in recent years about the trade dispute, the trade war. It was all in terms of their assets, soybeans, pork, iPhone components. Do you think the new weapons now is going to be in the form of face masks, surgical gowns, ventilators? Well, you know, the, the issue is that, uh, in, in my opinion, uh, and I wrote a recent book about this uh, called A New Foreign Policy uh, Beyond American Exceptionalism. Uh, some nationalists uh, in the United States don't want uh, success of other countries. And uh, they regard China as a threat. I just regard China as a, a successful country that uh, has made its way from poverty uh, and has uh, great talent and skills and uh, a lot to offer to the world. So my interpretation is very different, which is uh, we shouldn't have this kind of conflict at all. Uh, it's a big world uh, and uh, we need a successful China. Uh, we need a successful, uh, all parts of the world uh, for the world to work well. But the trade war was a pretext for something deeper, which was uh, uh, a nationalist U.S. attempt to uh, keep China in its place, in a way. Uh, and uh, that's why it quickly moved from a trade war to a technology war with the attacks on ZTE and Huawei. Uh, Huawei's crime, in quotation marks, is that it made the best low-cost 5G system. <laughs> that was uh, definitely an affront uh, to the United States. Uh, otherwise, Huawei's great equipment uh, that uh, countries around the world want because they want 5G capability. So all of this is to say we need to find the way out of this risk of confrontation because it will not serve the world it will not serve the U.S., it will not serve China, and it certainly won't serve any other country uh, if there is this rising tension between the number one and number two uh, economies of the world. And especially when we're facing global crises like a pandemic uh, or uh, environmental crises, 
we have to cooperate. It's the only sane thing to do. Uh, and therefore, I really hope we can find a way to lower the tension dramatically, not politicize what is not political. The virus is not political. Uh, it wasn't unleashed by anybody. It wasn't caused deliberately by anybody. It is a tragedy that we need to control together, cooperatively, as fast as possible, period. What would make me very sad is to see them decouple in any way. The United States seems to want to move in that direction to decouple from China, but also to decouple from the multilateral system as a whole. Do you think either is really going to happen or is it more rhetoric? Well, I don't know what's going to happen in my country because the politics are very unstable uh, and uh, it is... Uh, really an open question. Uh, what I would say is that the vast majority of the world wants a multilateral system. Uh, when the U.S. pulled out of the Paris Climate Agreement, it did so as one country alone. The other 192 United Nations member states stayed in the agreement. Uh, when the United States pulled out of the Iran nuclear deal, it was one country alone, the United States. Uh, the other countries uh, wanted this to continue. When the United States attacked the World Trade Organization appellate body, it was one country, the United States, that was doing this. So my advice to all the rest of the world, uh, and with China directly, is protect and support the multilateral system. Hope that the United States does so as well. We have a lot of supporters of the multilateral system in the US. Uh, I'm not alone in that. Uh, it's just that our politics is uh, going in a bad direction. But for China and other countries, don't react to US uh, unilateralism by becoming unilateral. React to US unilateralism by emphasizing multilateralism, because this is the only solution. If the United States pulls out of funding the World Health Organization, pour money in to the World Health Organization. Don't let the U.S. cripple, or it's not the U.S., don't let the Trump administration cripple uh, the multilateral system. Defend it. Uh, preserve it. Go by the rules, because the vast majority of nations of the world want it and need it and don't want to fall into the kind of uh, disarray <laughs> that our world has known in the past. As a historian, I think of the 1920s and 1930s uh, as a time when nationalism became dominant and it led to global disaster. So we really need to take the steps, no matter what the Trump administration ends up doing, for the rest of the world to protect multilateralism. It's not just the World Health Organization, it's the United Nations. And it's also the entire way of life as we've known it since the end of the Second World War. I love the UN, I know you do as well, but you're the global architect. So what would you say directly now to those people who are unsure, who've been swayed by the old narrative, who think that the UN is irrelevant. The UN was created, invented in 1945 to 
not have another global war. And it has played a vital, essential, and unique role in that during the period since 1945. Uh, it is uh, our way of living peacefully on the planet, the UN Charter. Uh, the UN Declaration of, on Human Rights is our moral charter for the whole world. All countries are signatories to it. The UN Framework Convention on Climate Change is our legal framework for protecting <coughs> the planet. The UN Convention on Biological Diversity is our legal framework for preserving biodiversity against the damages that humanity is causing. The World Health Organization is our global way of fighting pandemic diseases. We need the United Nations to be able to live uh, like rational human beings in a civilized way, keeping peace and not destroying the environment and uh, protecting the vulnerable. That's the purpose of the United Nations. It's vital. When it's attacked, it's all the more reason to defend it. This is a, an essential time uh, at the UN uh, to 75 years that uh, the young generation step forward and say, this is the world we want, a world of international law, international cooperation, international decency. We don't want to fall into a world of conflict. Uh, we can't afford a third world war, it would be definitely the end of humanity. Uh, it's unthinkable, except that it's possible if we don't have the bulwark of international law and international decency. The talent of the UN family, including the WHO family, is built for these times. It's being tested, of course, a time of nationalism, as you said, populism, a rise in inward thinking. What do you see next happening? Well, I hope we learn some lessons uh, from this uh, epidemic. This was uh, well warned ahead of time by experts about the risks. <laughs> we knew from SARS 2003 onward about coronaviruses specifically. Uh, we had ample warning. Uh, the question always is, can we think clearly? Can we mobilize the science? Can we turn clear thinking and science into public policy? Can we do it cooperatively? These are always the same questions, whether it's fighting an epidemic, keeping peace, responding to a, uh, a particular uh, global uh, disaster, or fighting climate change. Uh, can we think clearly? Can we use science? Can we make public policy based on the uh, principles of science and evidence. Can we cooperate globally? This is our checklist. Uh, and uh, we face it now with COVID-19. And uh, when we uh, get past COVID-19, uh, we're going to have to understand how did this happen, uh, even despite all the warnings? Why was the United States, for example, so unprepared for this? Uh, what can we do better? Because we're going to face more and more challenges where cooperation and preparedness and science all have to come together. COVID-19 impacts us all, but some of us in very acute ways, 
others to far greater extent. Who do you find yourself thinking about while you're at home and you have this space, this mental space to reflect in a different way? You know, like so many things in the world, uh, the impacts are so different uh, across society. Uh, poor people, people without shelter, people uh, living uh, in uh, homeless centers, uh, people uh, that uh, have no option but to go out uh, and uh, work even in dangerous circumstances, people who are on the front lines, nurses and doctors and hospital orderlies and ambulance drivers, uh, they're absolutely at the front line of this battle. Uh, and uh, our job for those of us who are safer and sheltered uh, is to make sure first that we hail the uh, uh, hero heroism of uh, those who are uh, in the front lines and second that we do everything possible to uh, keep them safe uh, and to bring this uh, pandemic under control in the fastest possible way uh, with uh, everybody uh, protected to the maximum extent possible. So this is a, a moral obligation for all of us to think, how can we as citizens or as individuals do the most we can to help bring this scourge under control? You are probably, if not one of the most important global architects of our time, presidents, prime ministers, secretary generals, they come and go, but you're the constant through them. You designed the Millennium Development Goals. Of course, you were key to the Sustainable Development Goals. We've come to feel safe in your hands and in your ambitions. But realistically now with COVID-19, do you think we have to realign the SDGs and perhaps to rewrite what we can expect of the world when it's being put through new stresses that some people were not ready for? Well, you know, I'm not the architect of these because these are global goals, but I'm a big believer in having global goals. And so I have devoted my career to trying to uh, achieve what we say we want to achieve. Uh, what uh, really ticks me off is when we say we want to do something and then don't try to do it. So it's not easy to achieve big goals of ending poverty uh, or protecting the environment or ending a pandemic. These are not simple matters, but these are important objectives. And we have so much talent in the world, so much knowledge, technology, so much goodwill, so much desire of humanity to have a decent life for themselves and especially for their children and their families and their loved ones. We, we have the means to address these issues uh, and that, I think, has to be our abiding purpose. It's how I view matters day to day, which is we can do it, we want to do it, we need to do it. So what's missing today? What can we do today to add another piece of that jigsaw puzzle so that we're really completing the full picture and getting the job done? That's how I tend to think of this. Uh, from morning till night, what can we do today to add to the solutions? Jeffrey Sachs, it's an honor speaking with you at this critical time. 
Well, thank you very much for what you're doing and uh, sharing uh, the global discussion and promoting the understanding of the U.S. and China, which is so vital because if these two great countries uh, with so much uh, capacity cooperate together, think of how much can be solved in the world. The China Current continues its special coverage on the coronavirus outbreak. Go to our social media, at The China Current, and our website for interviews, videos, and podcasts. I'm James Chow. Thank you.